Welcome back to the Northwestern University Law Review's podcast, Below the Line. I'm the Volume 116 Editor-in-Chief, Sarah Chansky. Hopefully, you've had a chance to listen to our episode on which I discussed the recent Supreme Court decision, Jones v. Mississippi, with David Shapiro, who argued on behalf of Brett Jones in front of the Supreme Court. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I suggest you go back and do that um, before you jump into this podcast. Today, I'm talking with Kempis Songster, also known as Gunny, and Rachel Lopez, author, uh, authors of a forthcoming article in Northwestern University Law Review titled Redeeming Justice. In that article, they argue with their co-author, Terrell Carter, that every human being is both capable of and has a right to redemption, grounded in the Eighth Amendment, or at least that's where they ground their argument, their legal arguments. It's not a direct response to the court's decision in Jones, but that decision does raise some of the same questions. So we're taking this opportunity today to discuss their article and activism in light of the court's ruling. But before we jump into that discussion, Ghani, can you say a little bit more about you, your co-author, Rel, and what brought the two of you to write this article with Rachel? Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Sarah. And, and, and you know, thank you to um, Northwestern and everybody that believed in this piece and really thinks that, um, you know, it's something that society needs to talk about. So I met Rel, you know, about maybe 17 years ago in 2004, I think. I think that would be the, the right math. But um, at that time, I had maybe about 20 years in prison already. And um, this was at Greater Ford. SCI Greater Ford was the, is, is the largest penitentiary in the state of Pennsylvania, the sixth largest in the country. And when I was transferred there, I was transferred there from another facility, SCI Green. And um, I was placed on the same cell block as, as Terrell. It took a, a couple of weeks, but we eventually gravitated towards each other because the way we, I guess, carried ourselves, you know, quiet, you know, mind our own business. And we always had books with us. And I, I think the books was what, you know, drew us to each other because I would learn that Rel was, um, was an aspiring author. Matter of fact, he let me read the manuscript to his first published book before it was ever published, Guilty Reflections. Um, and 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 we we both had we were both very fond of Victor Hugo's writings, right? And and thought about how Victor Hugo would use so much visual in the way he he described his scenes and stuff like that. And so, you know, we 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 both you know adopted a lot of Victor Hugo style of writings. But Terrell and I, you know, we got real close on the cell block. We would talk about every day. You know, um, he was already in Villanova at the time. Villanova University had a bachelor's program at Greater Ford. It was the only bachelor's program in the Pennsylvania prison system. And Terrell Carter was was working on his bachelor's at the time. And he was one of the ones that really, like, motivated me and encouraged me to sign up and enroll in Villanova at the time. Anyway, um Miller came down, the, the ruling, the Miller ruling came down in 2012, a year after Terrell and I had formed a group um, called uh, Right to Redemption. And we were both serving life without parole sentences, by the way. 
And um, we thought that, you know, it was time to really sit down and, and figure out a way to address this, this, this sentence um, and, and, and come up with a different idea that we could propose to the state, you know, to change the, the sentencing practices. Um, Miller came down again a year after we formed that group. And uh, I was eventually released. I was released four, no, five years after Miller. And hugged Grell, you know, said goodbye to him, you know, physically. But we would stay in touch, you know, over the phone and through emails and things like that. While I was out here, you know, I met Rachel. Rachel, a professor at, at Drexel University, I think the first time. and some of the students from her community lawyering clinic that she runs. And we talked about the idea of redemption, you know, because um, she had made contact, her and her students had made contact with REL and the, the Right to Redemption group. And I used to be, I was one of the founding members of Right to Redemption, but now I was released on the outside. So, you know, I was like the, um, the middle person kind of like translating or relaying to Rachel and her students, you know, the story behind Right to Redemption and what it meant to us on the inside. Eventually, they went inside the prison, I believe, or you know, established some kind of contact with the men at Right to Redemption and began working on, on a project. Um, Rachel came up with the idea of writing this article um, to expand the limitations or the codifications of, of uh, of, of, of the life without parole sentence, you know, to expand it to, um, you know, to, 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 to fight for the recognition of redemption as a human right, right? And she shared with us what she had learned from her search through international law and, you know, looking at the Eighth Amendment a lot more closely and so on and so forth. And she just thought it would be a good idea if, um, herself and Rel and me had worked together on this piece. And, and she wanted to do it with Rel and me because of how deeply we thought about this issue of redemption. And, um, and that kind of like is the story behind uh, the birth of the piece, Redeeming Justice. And I just, like to, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so I'm gonna come to Rachel in a moment, but before I do that, Ghani, can you, for for our listeners who are maybe a little bit less familiar with the holding in Miller and why it was so important, could you explain for a moment what it was about Miller that resulted in your release shortly after? Yeah. Or maybe not shortly after, actually. It was a couple of years after. Yeah, a few years after. So I was sentenced to life without parole in Pennsylvania at the age of 15 right or for something that happened at the age of 15. Um, when Miller versus Alabama came down on June 25th, 2012, I had 25 years in on that sentence. Two months after that, a little over two months on September 5th, my sentence to life without parole was vacated in federal court. Um, but it would take another five years for me to be um, to be resentenced and released, but Miller versus Alabama directly um, controlled my case because it ruled that it is unconstitutional to sentence 
children or people under 18 years of age to mandatory life without parole. And that was my sentence. I was sentenced to mandatory life. And so Miller versus Alabama represented um, more or less like a, a grace for me. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Rachel, do you want to add anything about how you came to this topic and to be writing about and thinking about the right to redemption? Sure. Um, so Donnie uh, covered a lot of ground in his answer to this question. So I'll just actually, uh, Donnie, you may not remember this, but I actually met you behind uh, the walls um, because the think tank hosted a workshop for Drexel law professors who wanted to do community-based learning. And that's where I first met some of the members of the think tank that came up with the idea of the right to redemption. Um, and um, my clinic, as uh, Ghani explained, uh, worked with this think tank. You know, we started, I think, in, in 2016 and then throughout the years worked on different projects together. Ghani and I reconnected when he um, came to a meeting at the law, law school, the Klein School of Law, to discuss an idea that we had for working with the think tank to develop potentially prospective litigation around um, people with dementia that are now behind bars um, and are sentenced to a death by incarceration sentence. Um, I was doing some other research for that case when I came across the European Court of Human Rights jurisprudence. And it was so, um, I remember the moment so well because I had been hearing about this concept. Actually, Connie, the other day I pulled out the mission statement. I have a hard copy of the mission statement that was given to me probably in, you know, I think even like 20. 2014 or something like that. And I remember hearing of this concept of the right to redemption over all these years and was startled to learn when I started reading a case called um, uh, Vinter um, that came out of the European Court of Human Rights in, in 2013, that this concept of the right to redemption that had sort of organically grown and was conceptualized by the group as a human rights also existed in the European Court of Human Rights and then began sort of a journey into the jurisprudence of many countries around the world and learned that this concept sort of was being grown in different locations and, and localities across the world. And I thought this was a real opportunity both to sort of lift up the work of the Right to Redemption Committee, but also explore ways in which this right could be incorporated into our jurisprudence in the US. And um, I think it's really important to highlight the connection with critical race studies, which has a long tradition of incorporating the lived experiences of individuals to develop alternative meanings to legal doctrines. And there's also sort of a body of, a kind of emerging body of legal scholarship called movement law scholarship. Uh, there's a forthcoming article in the Stanford Law Review sort of outlining this idea of basically trying to press the boundaries of what legal scholarship looks like by evoking um, lived experience, but also developing meaning alongside social movements. And so we're sort of in the spirit of that tradition uh, writing this article. Thank you both for sharing both your, your past experiences and also the context for this particular article, both theoretically and jurisprudentially. And actually jurisprudentially is where I wanna go next um, because Jones v. Mississippi, which is in some ways connected to the arguments in your article builds on prior cases. So I want to start with those prior cases before we start digging into Jones. Rachel, in your article, you argue that all people are capable of change. And for that reason, there should be a right to redemption. 
What has the Supreme Court said about prospects for redemption for those sentenced to life without parole? And how does that compare to the human rights law that maybe you were just referencing some of it that's relevant? Yeah, absolutely. So the the Supreme Court, just, you know, to kind of give a little bit of background, uh, its, its perspective and view on what life without full sentences mean or constitute are exactly the reasons why the European Court of Human Rights believes that it's a violation of human rights. The way that, you know, the Supreme Court has characterized a life without full sentence is basically means that rehabilitation is entirely off the table. That's what, you know, Miller characterizes that drawing from some of the some of the past jurisprudence. And I'm actually going to quote a, um, some language from Graham because I think it really illustrates what the issue is. So Graham says that a life without parole sense constitutes a denial of hope. It means that good behavior and character improvement are immaterial. It means whatever the future may hold in store for the mind and spirit of the defendant, he will remain in prison for the rest of his days. And in this way, it's an irrevocable judgment about someone's place in society. Um, you know, and, and it's irrevocable. That's a, that's a part of the mandatory piece of this. The life without parole means it can never be revisited. And that's an exact contrast to what the European Court of Human Rights has said, right? So they, they think that hope is a vital aspect of the human person and that to deny hope um, can amount to cruel and unusual punishment. And for that reason, it's said that all life sentences, for all life sentences, there must be a possibility um, for release. So consideration of rehabilitation and if, if you know, the sentencing authority or, or a, a whatever authority in different countries, it takes different um, forms. But if a person is determined to be rehabilitated, then release must be possible. And that's, you know, it most sort of, I think, clearly articulated by the European Court of Human Rights, but really there are um, many countries across the world that have also adopted and developed a similar understanding, all grounded in this idea of human dignity and, and how we understand hope to be integrally connected to the human condition. Yeah, thanks for that um, context. And then, Donnie, I want to shift with a question to you. In the article, you call life without parole sentences death by incarceration or DBI. Can you explain what that phrase means to you? Yeah, so in, in Pennsylvania, as in a few other states in the U.S., life without parole is, is final. A person is, is given the sentence, is never eligible to be seen, heard, or considered by a parole board to determine after any number of years if the person is ready to rejoin the community as a responsible and contributing citizen, even if they might be. And, you know, I know people who have gone on to earn their bachelor's, master's, and uh, PhDs in prison. They would still still be ineligible. They've started programs, they've mentored, they would still be ineligible. Um, a person sentenced to life without parole is effectively condemned, condemned to die in prison. It is effectively the other death penalty, and it's called that in some, in some other states. One death sentence is death by injection or electrocution or whatever instantaneous and acute means of executing the condemned person is used. The other death sentence is 
death by regulation. It's a slow death, but it's just as final. In fact, more people die serving life without parole sentences than people die on death row. When I was at SCI Greater Ford alone, um, just, you know, from, from 1991 to, um, to now, no, to, to when Greater Ford was closed in 2018, over 600 people died in that prison from different causes, you know, health issues and so on and so forth. The majority of them are serving life without parole or, 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 or death by incarceration sentences. And so um, it's not even a comparison. You know, life without parole is actually, by those numbers, more fatal and less escapable than a death row sentence. So many of us, an ever-increasing number of us in the state, in fact, you know, of Pennsylvania, have decided that a sentence whose purpose is death, right, and has the highest death rate of all sentences, should not be called life. Life is um, a beautiful a word for a wonderful phenomenon, and to refer to a sentence that represents death with the word with that word represents with a word that represents its opposite. It's misleading. It's beyond a euphemism for many of us. It can desensitize the rest of society to the gravity of the sentence. It can inoculate us to its detriments to our own humanity. And so, an, an, an ever increasing number of us refer to the sentence of life without parole as what it is death by incarceration. So that's, I think, a really helpful context and perspective from the human lived experience of what these decisions mean for actual people. And let's, um, let's come back to some of the specific Supreme Court decisions that have been made that have sort of influenced this, um, this I guess these policies about whether or not life without parole is uh, is appropriate. Um, Ghani, in your introduction, you mentioned that after Miller, you were released because Miller determined that um, children could not be automatically sentenced to life without parole. Could you? Um, so so it 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 actually allowed your release a few years later, although you had already served about. 20 or 25 years. Can you say a little bit more about what the impact of decisions like Miller and Montgomery have on others like Rel Carter, your co-author, who were not under 18 when they were sentenced to life without parole? Yeah, for sure. Um, but I can also say a little bit about what it meant to me too, you know, because it, it did. Yeah, it, absolutely. You know, no doubt. And because, you know, my, again, my sentence to death by incarceration, again, was vacated September 5th, 2012, just over two months after Miller. And I had, again, already had served, you know, 25 years on that sentence. So naturally, Miller represented not just a ray of hope, but an actual light at the end of the tunnel for me that was no longer the train inevitably coming towards me. You know, it represented a miracle, really, a grace, you know, if you will. But for me, it wasn't something to celebrate, right? And I just want to lift that, lift that up. I was careful to not celebrate for, for several reasons, because one, everyone was not celebrating those rulings. Sure, my own family and, and legal representation were naturally inclined to celebrate 
but the family of the victim in my case didn't find cause to celebrate for sure. Um, family members of people who lost their lives at the hands of a young person did not see the ruling as cause for celebration. And I was conscious and considerate of that. Of course, I couldn't deny my happiness at being given a chance, right? Um, there is a biological imperative in every creature to be free, you know, but it was a time of even deeper reflection for me, um, all the growing and developing and evolving that I was able to do and achieve over the decades in prison, in spite of, of prison, I should say, might actually be getting an opportunity to prove itself, you know, to, 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 to my family, to the community and to the world. And, and, and that's what that represented for me. Um, and I also was careful not to celebrate because I knew that everybody behind the prison walls wasn't able to share in the celebration. And so I didn't want to get too carried away, you know, um, and, and, and this kind of like segues into the impact of this ruling on, um, on other people, including Rel, right? Um, so the rulings had different impacts and meanings for different people, even in the prison context. Naturally, for condemned children or people whose cases were directly controlled by Miller and Montgomery, it was a grace. For others, they might have been happy that their friends would have a chance to be free, even if they didn't um, meet the same, they would benefit from the rulings that their friends were. You know, friends, you know, people they had spent years in prison with, working out in the wake pit, the wake, uh, weight training pit with, playing basketball with, eating with, praying with, commiserating with each other with, spending time in the law library, helping each other um, research and litigate cases and stuff and fight their cases with, you know, they might've been happy when they found out their friend is, is actually going to be benefiting from this new ruling. Um, for others, it gave them hope because the same science that educated and influenced the court with respect to the differences between children and adults also said that the brain doesn't fully develop until one's mid-20s. So the rulings actually inspired the birth of another class of litigants, the 18 to 24 group. People also started questioning the arbitrary age of 18 as a line that one acutely crosses into adulthood. You know, legal actions were even taken by this class created by Miller, you know, in the state actions that made it all the way to the state superior court. Um, I believe in one state, is it, and Rachel, correct me if, if I'm wrong, it might be Connecticut where the age maximum of Miller was moved to 18. Um, so, you know, Miller impacted a sizable segment of the prison population in, the, in, in, in even in a negative way, you know, um, at least emotionally, because while some like Rel saw it as another door being opened um, by the ruling, you know, so Rel might have fit into two groups, the group that was just happy to see their friends go, you know, because like I was one of Ren's friends, and so he was happy to see me be free. But he was also that hopeful group and that visionary group that, um, that saw another door being opened by the ruling, a door that might be hopeful for him, who was 22 or 23 years old at the time of his offense. You know, um, some saw Miller, though, as a door being closed on them, you know, sealing them in because they did not fit into the category, 
right of Miller. They did they did not fit into either category. They didn't fit the below 18 class that Miller directly controlled, and they did not fit the 18 to 24 class that was really vibing on a hope and a prayer, right? They also saw and continue to see how hard condemned children have been fought against, you know? They see how many times this issue of child life without parole or juvenile life without parole has been going back up to the U.S. Supreme Court you know what I'm saying, gaining ground and losing ground, as in the case with Jones, you know what I mean? And so they've said to themselves, like, you know, and to one another, if it's taking this long for a child's capacity for redemption to be finally a foregone conclusion, how long would it take for people whose offenses happened when they, when they were adults? So they're like, look, if, 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 if children are having it such, you know, so hard, I mean, if the, if the system is still fighting against children all these years, after Miller, you know, what chance have they? And so they, a lot of them have already resigned themselves to dying in prison if, by, if they don't overturn their cases by some miracle or by some greater miracle get pardoned or something like that. So Miller has impacted people in all kinds of ways, positive and negative, directly and indirectly. So I want to connect this now back to your article, but um, I want to first do a quick review. So the Supreme Court has had a couple of decisions that really do seem to highlight this line between children and adults, between juveniles and adults, drawing that line at the age of 18, including decisions like Graham, where they decided that there could be no life without parole for non-homicide crimes, Roper, no capital punishment for juveniles. And then we've talked about Miller and Montgomery establishing no automatic life without parole for juveniles. And all of these are based on the idea that something changes at the age of 18 or something changes between children and adults, that somehow children are maybe more um, able to redeem themselves or change or the things done before you're an adult are maybe less you're somehow less culpable for them. And there is evidence to suggest that children at least are certainly capable of change and growth. Um, a new study out of Montclair State University found just a 1% recidivism rate among juveniles sentenced to life without parole and later released like Ghani after the court's decision in Miller. And Ghani, you already drew attention to the fact that this 18-year-old line is arbitrary, and there's some science to support maybe moving that line to the age of 24 or 26. So my question for you is less about whether that 18-year-old line is um, the right place and more about whether or not there should be a line at all. Your article argues that the right to redemption belongs to all people. So, So does childhood versus adulthood, wherever that line is drawn, make a difference in terms of one's capacity for redemption, in your opinion. And I think I'm maybe going to ask Rachel to answer this question first, unless you want to go in a different order. No, let's follow the order that, that you have. Follow your spirit on that one, Sarah. I'm confident. <laughs> <you're sure. laughs> yeah, I, I think that you really highlight the point here because there's been you know, this focus on uh, children being different, right, constitutionally different, and therefore worth, worthy of different treatment. Um, 
and of course there is there's social science and, and um, you know neuroscience have confirmed that you know children do have a greater capacity for change but there is it's also true that that is not a hard line and I, and it sort of it sometimes feels to some extent arbitrary because we're saying well at this you know once that person hits 18 then they are incapable of redemption they can never possibly atone for things that they feel bad about and that's just not uh, that doesn't reflect the human experience, right? We can all think of things, no matter our age, that we feel bad about and want to make amends for. Um, that's just part of the human condition, and it's also reflected in human rights law. And so part of the argument here is that really all human beings have the capacity for change, and that that should be reflected in the law. And at a bare minimum, that means that sentences like life without parole sentences that allow for no opportunity for someone to show their redemption um, should be constitute cruel and unusual punishment. There's that vital aspect of hope that the Court of Human Rights discusses that I think is so critical here. We, we want a society, if we think of like the society that we all wanna have, we all wanna believe that people are capable of change. We wanna believe that hope um, you know, that we will all want to keep the hope for a better society. And I think the denial of that also says something about us as a society that we need to really grapple with it, you know, beyond the doctrine, right? Like, who do we want to be? And what do we want to reflect in the world? And I think this is part of the evolution of the human species in a way of thinking about, well, maybe we want people to always have a chance to demonstrate that they've changed. And isn't it better indeed for people to be not be locked in the worst expression of themselves, but rather have the space to create opportunities and show change? I mean, what that really means is that we can't have sentences that don't allow for that, like life without parole or death by incarceration. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I do agree that children might, you know, warrant a, a wider latitude of factors, you know, consideration of a wider latitude of, of mitigating factors to their their, their action. And, and one of those factors, you definitely, you know, the, the age, you know, and the undevelopment of their capacity for self-control and so on and so forth, you know. But I think, um, you know, there's, a, you know, we have had a tendency to oversimplify the human condition and the human experience. You know, which is why we we draw these hard lines of demarcation between childhood and adulthood. You know, and if that and and with the new understandings we have about the complexities and the nuances of what it means to be human, you know, if um if it raises questions about that line, then it raises questions about any line. You know what I'm saying? Because um no one is the same and no one responds to things the same. You know, and although you know even even with the um this newer understanding that the brain doesn't fully develop until you're 25, you know, that's biologically it, it, it fully develops, but um, as far as it being conditioned, you know, and, and programmed to respond to things in a certain way that comes through, you know, one's experiences and, and conditions, you know, and conditionings and socializations and everybody does not have the same, socializations and experiences, you know, kind of like to use an, 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 the age-old analogy, and it, but it is relevant, you know, if you have a child that grew up, you know, in 
a situation that was less than optimal. And I think some people might use like raised by wolves or whatever the case may be. But even a child that was raised raised by wolves by the age of 25, you know, their brain would fully develop, you know, but um, would the brain function in the same way? Would their fully developed brain function in the same way that um, a child's brain that actually grew up, you know, in a human family? human upbringing and, and had everything that they needed to fully develop. And so I just think that, um, you know, we need a, a, a legal system and a legal understanding that, um, that has a more mature vision into the complexities of what it means to be human, you know, and just, just, just to, just to add a little, you know, I'll go ahead, go ahead, Sarah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, that's my, yeah, go ahead, Rachel. I just want to add something because I, I I think that um, you know that our discussion here really reflects sort of these uh, metaphysical questions around the human condition. But there's also you know for for people that really want to ground themselves in science, there's also science to support what we're saying. So there's general consensus in the scientific community that there's a natural decline in criminality with age. Basically, there's this idea that elderly individuals age out of crime, and so you know, it's interesting that we focus on juveniles when we could say the same thing about the elderly and those that are incarcerated on the tail end of life without full sentences. And that's really, I think, um, consistent with our broader argument of, of why why draw these arbitrary lines and not allow for all human beings to show redemption because the, the social, both sort of like when we're thinking of the human spirit, I, we want to believe in hope and change, but we can also look at the scientific research to support that as well, that individuals on either end of their lifespans can change. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, that added now, context. Sarah, can I add something? Of course. To, to what Rachel said, you know, because it's, it's, it's just a profound point that, that needs, you know, deep, deep fleshing out by, by all of us, you know, um, the scientific community, the religious community, the philosophical community don't normally see eye to eye. You know, historically, these communities, these these segments of society, have um, have had all kinds of contradictions between each other. You know, that that's hard to reconcile. But one thing that these segments seem to agree on is the human capacity for for transformation and change. You know. Um, in 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 First Corinthians, I believe it's uh, First Corinthians um, chapter thirteen, verse eleven. I think that's it, where it says, "You know, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, I understood as a child. But when I became an adult, I put away childish things." You know, um, you know, Aristotle wrote twenty five hundred years ago about the nature of adolescence in his treatise on rhetoric. You know, um, when he talked about you know, in terms of their character, you know, um, the young are prone to desires and, and and inclined to do whatever they desire, and they are impulsive and quick-tempered and inclined to follow their act, anger by action, and they are unable to resist their impulses, for through love of honor, they cannot put up with being belittled, but become indignant if they think they are done wrong, and then he goes on and on and on to describe the nature of adolescence, and and then science comes along in 2005, as if we needed science to actually tell us that children were different or that, you know, human beings had the capacity to um, to grow out of whatever um, 
fallibilities led to them committing some type of violent act. You know, all of these two, these three different communities seem to agree that, you know, we have the capacity to grow and change. You know, um, it, it, it begs the question for me, what is our legal system's frame of reference, you know, on, on redemption, you know, on the human condition, especially as it relates to the graduation from childhood into adulthood, you know? If, if science, philosophy, and religion, all those communities all over the world agree on the human capacity for transformation and redemption, you know, where is the legal community getting its frame of reference? Mm-hmm. It seems to be out of step with everyone else. Yeah, probably an unanswerable question, but one that has to be asked anyway. And I think it's possible to both acknowledge and recognize that science says that children are somehow different and also still know and believe that everyone is capable of change. And I think most of us can look at our own lives and the people that we know thinking about um, the power of lived experience and recognize that if we see this capacity for change in adults all around us. And maybe the question is more so who is allowed to have that capacity for change. Um, And I think we have to acknowledge here that when it comes to the criminal legal system, we are talking about people who grew up and live in poverty, black and brown, often men, who are denied that opportunity and capacity for change in ways that the broader culture um, maybe accounts for or allows for more capacity for change. And so I think that probably has to be acknowledged as well. Why don't we, yeah, go ahead, Connie. Um, Just a little bit of, uh, just want to talk about because you did ask me about the impact of, of, of Miller and and Montgomery on me personally and um, what it meant to me. But I, it, the, the impact actually started as far back as Roper. I think that's when it really started for me. And I just want to lift that up because it fits into, you know, exactly what we're talking about here. This frame of mind, you know, of... Um, of this, this this hopeful change in my situation, right? Started as far back as as Roper. And I think Roper impacted me more than Miller because it introduced something to me that would allow me a deeper and more empirical look into my own self as a child, right? Looking back at my own childhood as 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 an adult sitting in a prison cell, right? On the bunk bed. At the, in the thinking man's position, asking myself, how did I end up in this situation, right? Um, that's something that Roper introduced was, was neuroscience. And I had spent years being brutalized by my self-accusing spirit about how I could have done something so reprehensible, something so irreparable and irreversible, something that was in stark contrast to the family foundations and roots that I was raised on. And how could I make myself so unrecognizable to my own mother, right? I knew I was not inherently a bad person. I was a good person, right? I am a good person. I certainly was evil on that fateful night, on that fateful act, 
I wasn't confined to that. And I had searched my memory for answers for moments in my life that had potentially altered my thinking and pointed my feet to a darker downward slope, right? The kind of thinking that made me run away from my loving mother to another city in another state more than 250 miles away to join unsavory company, right? The kind of thinking that would have me end up with permanently bloodstained hands. I had no idea that even decades into my sentence of death by incarceration, and after gorging myself on hundreds of books and immersing myself in religion and spirituality and every everything that I could grab grab on to, to better myself, right? That I was I was missing something in my brain. You know, I didn't know that. And Roper exposed me to that. And I wasn't looking for an excuse. I didn't need an excuse. It was irrelevant at that point, right? Um, I needed an explanation. I knew if, if, I, if, if, if I could find an explanation, if we can find an explanation to a problem, then we can figure out a solution to it. And where there is no explanation, there is no solution. And where there is no solution, there is no hope. And Roper gave me hope. I would go on to devour neuroscience for to this day. I've been studying it since 2006, you know, and understanding the brain wasn't about hope for me as it related to relief from prison. It represented a better understanding of the human condition and hope in helping other people to be more responsible. It informs my activism. Now it's about creating a society that's conducive to children making better choices and not a society that exacerbates and exploits their vulnerabilities and then condemns them for it, you know? And so for me, you know, neuroscience, which which started with Roper, you know, impacted me in that personal way, you know what I'm saying? Um, considering things about myself that I hadn't um, considered before. And now I was able to look at ways to address violence and that's going on in our communities. And I just, and, and I want to add this, because life without parole or death by incarceration is related to violence, the, the fight for redemption or the fight for the recognition of redemption as a right is inseparable from the need for a new theory of violence. It's all about hope, hope in the capacity to be better than before or to be better before, during, and after situations that can give rise to violence. And so, you know, I just wanted to, to lift that up. And, and life without parole or death by incarceration is not the answer to the violence that's happening in our, in our cities, in our society, in all of those cities that have the highest rate of death by incarceration, they also have the highest rates of violence. Yeah, thanks for bringing Roper back into the conversation and, and helping us think through a little bit more how a better understanding of science can help to make sense of some of these things and help you make sense of some of these things. So we've been having this really interesting discussion and important discussion about how our society is maturing into an understanding that redemption should be an opportunity for everyone. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence has not developed that maturity yet. Um, and so coming back to the decision in Jones, which was still very much focused on the question of juveniles and death by incarceration or life without parole, Rachel, could you just quickly summarize for us what the issue was in Jones and how the court ruled so that then we can talk about the connections to your article? Sure, absolutely, Sarah. So 
In Jones v. Mississippi, the court was asked to decide whether trial courts must conclude that a child is permanently incorrigible, meaning that they lack any hope for rehabilitation before imposing a license without parole or a death by incarceration sentence. The court actually uh, decided that it was not necessary to determine that an, a juvenile is permanently incorrigible. And instead, uh, Red Miller is only requiring that you be considered as a mitigating factor at sentencing. And probably for me, the most alarming part of the decision is it said, as long as the sentencer had discretion, so in other words, as long as the life without parole sentence is not automatic or mandatory, uh, that it will be assumed that youth was considered in sentencing. Um, and, and that's just, you know, for anyone who's been through the criminal legal system can understand how that uh, can certainly be counterfactual to many people's experiences. And also will make, you know, appeals on the basis of failure to consider youth, which, you know, Miller held uh, exceedingly difficult. Um, Miller was meant to make these sentences exceedingly rare for juveniles, for children. And unfortunately, I think this ruling is going to have the effect of making it much more common. Thank you for that context, Rachel. And now um, I want to, to return to a statement or a question that was made during oral arguments by Justice Samuel Alito, who did kind of raise this question of, are juveniles really different? Is this something that maybe should be considered for for everyone when he asked um, the counsel for the petitioner, do you think there are any human beings who are not capable of redemption? But ultimately, Rachel, what did the Jones decision decide about redemption? So the court um, sort of dodges this issue of redemption, which seems, you know, was it somewhat surprising given Alito's um, very poignant questions about redemption during oral arguments. So, what the court said is basically that even experts, even psychologists, have trouble differentiating between children who are just what the court characterizes as um, unfortunate yet transient in maturity, and those rare individuals who actually their crime represents irreparable corruption. And that was the distinction that the court is, you know, what, what the petitioner was asking the court to draw, that distinction. And the court says that's just too hard. And so seemingly what the court is saying, well, if it's too hard for experts to draw that distinction, we're not going require, to require trial courts to do that. And that's really interesting if you put that in context with some of the jurisprudence I described earlier on, where indeed the court has repeatedly said that life without parole sentences essentially mean that someone is irredeemable, that there's no possibility of rehabilitation, that in fact it forswears the rehabilitative ideal. Yeah, so asking courts to, to distinguish between transient immaturity and irreparable corruption seems to be something that, that the court is very much asking courts to do, and yet at the same time is claiming is impossible. So Ghani, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on what what is happening here in, in this decision? And is this something that courts should be doing, drawing a distinction or attempting to draw a distinction between transient immaturity in the human life in front of them and irreparable corruption? Yeah, um, I don't know. You know, when this ruling came down, 
I think uh, my friend Robert Salim Holbrook, who's also a former child lifer, uh, moving an entire legal project out here as the executive director of the Abolitionist Law Center, he said it best. He said, you know, this, you know, Jones is case in point why, you know, victories won today are going to be after defended tomorrow, you know, um, you know, because we are have effectively in Jones seen the beginning of the rolling back of Miller in less than 10 years. You know, um, you know, it, it basically, you know, if you read through all the words, it's erasing the lines of differences between a child and an adult. It's basically saying there's no difference between a, what was established by Miller, which was that a, a child is different from an adult, was erased in Jones. You know, and when that ruling came down, even for those of us that were out here, you know, that that were paroled, you know, it it, it sent chills. You know, because, you know, mind you, we're out here on lifetime parole in Pennsylvania. You know, we're on parole for the rest of our lives. And so we're not as free as everyone else. You know, we live our lives walking on eggshells, actually. And so, um, you know, when that ruling, at any given time, you know, like me right here talking to you right now, at any given time, I could be taken back to prison and made to serve out the rest of my sentence, which is you know, until I die for any, any reason. I'm very sensitive to that. And so when that ruling came down, it, 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 it made us, a lot of us that's out here now on parole aware of that, like, wow, you know, and it definitely for people that haven't even been resentenced yet, you know, it, um, it kind of like sealed the door in on them, you know what I mean? And, and for those that don't, don't even fit the category of Miller versus Alabama, you know, so the ruling kind of like increased the stress level, dampened the spirits, you know, um, it made things a little darker, you know, and just full of foreboding for the days moving ahead, you know, and I don't believe that, you know, I do believe that this should be a separate process. You know, I think Miller and Montgomery had it right, you know, in light of the evolving standards of human decency, that this wider latitude of mitigating factors should be considered, especially when you're dealing with children. And there should be a process, you know, um, some kind of hearing, you know, that's focused on determining, you know what I'm saying, where a child was mentally and, and so on and so forth at the time of the, of the offense. And so to say that that's not required, that would mean that any sentencer, any judge that has a prone to be discriminatory, to be, um, that, that has a, a tendency to be callous, can do so. And you know what I'm saying? And there's no, there's no checks and balance. You know, there's, uh, there's nothing that the, um, the sentencer would be, be holding to. Mm-hmm. And that's a perfect, I think, segue into my next question, which um, I want to tie this back to the Eighth Amendment's guarantee against cruel and unusual punishment, which, Johnny, your statement about judges who may be less sensitive, may be prone to harsher sentences, triggers for me. Um, and in, in oral arguments, Alito said that Miller, or he stated that Miller was light years from the Eighth Amendment, and yet... So to my, Justice Sotomayor's dissent argues that the Eighth Amendment requires that juveniles have the opportunity to show that they have rehabilitated themselves. And so you have two justices with completely different uh, seeming understandings of the, of the Eighth Amendment. Rachel, your article arguing for the right to redemption rests on an Eighth Amendment article or Eighth Amendment argument. 
So how do you think Alito has it wrong and how would you build on or depart from Justice Sotomayor's argument? So, so of course it's hard to get in the mind of justices when they ask these questions. Um, but, but I suspect that what Justice Alito is referring to is sort of an original understanding of the Eighth Amendment that would limit cruel and unusual punishment to those punishments that would have been considered barbaric or torturous in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, that's sort of what um, many of the originalists on the court look back to. Um, but the Supreme Court has consistently recognized that the Eighth Amendment is not limited to those uh, those uh, punishments that would have been considered barbaric in the 17th and 18th centuries. And indeed has adopted what is called involving standard of decency that marks the progress that marks the progress of a mature society. And that's really kind of the launching off point for our article. So in line with this jurisprudence, um, this is where we locate the right to redemption. So the Supreme Court has at times looked at the laws and practices of international and for, foreign uh, jurisdictions as one indicia of what are the evolving standards of decency. It's not binding uh, precedent, but it certainly has been considered persuasive in past cases, including Roper notably. Um, and you know, it kind of takes us back to the core principle that undergirds the Eighth Amendment. So throughout the jurisprudence, the courts refer to human dignity as the foundation of the cruel and unusual prohibition, that we, we don't allow cruel and unusual punishments because of this concept of human dignity. And that's the very concept on, on which the right to redemption is based in these other jurisdictions, including the European Court of Human Rights, the Ger uh, German constitutional courts and courts all around the world, they have grounded what they call sometimes the right to hope or give other names to, but what are essentially what we're arguing for here, which is the right to redemption. So what we're trying to urge here is an understanding that unites um, and intertwines these concepts of dignity worldwide and really reads into the, this Eighth Amendment, an idea of the right to redemption that allows for all people to have the opportunity to show um, that they can, they've atoned for, for the transgression. And so I guess, you, you know, just to sort of tie, yeah, go ahead. Just to sort of tie it back to your question about Sotomayor. So, so Sotomayor, you know, she's arguing, right, that, that um, all children, all juvenile defendants should have the opportunity to show that their crime did not reflect irreparable corruption. Um, if it didn't, that there should be hope for some years of life outside of prison walls. Uh, her argument is limited to children, and for the reasons we've discussed, we, we would counter and say that all human beings should have that right. All human beings should be able to show their capacity for change and redemption, and that this is possible. There is, there, there is possible within the Eighth Amendment this redemptive reading. Yeah, thanks for tying it back there, and I actually want to elaborate on maybe one other potential distinction between Justice Sotomayor's argument and your argument in your paper. And Ghani, I want to come to you for this question because Justice Sotomayor discusses the opportunity to show rehabilitation. But in your article, and as you've talked here today, you are very intentional about talking about a right to redemption rather than rehabilitation. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you would distinguish if you would distinguish between the concept of rehabilitation and redemption and why it's important for you to be thinking about this universal human right as one to redemption and not just rehabilitation. 
Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's, it's for us, it's, it's really clear, you know, when we think about rehabilitation, rehabilitation is, is something that the state administers, you know, it's, it's what's done to you. You know, you're placed in a situation so that you can be rehabilitated, you know, and so it's, um, you're just a, a passive subject in the, in, in rehabilitation, you know, kind of like, you know, this idea of accountability as being, you know, punished, you're being held accountable by being sentenced and placed in a prison cell. Um, while for others, you know, accountability is a little more proactive than that. It requires a little more agency, and as is the case with redemption. That's what's different for us is, is, is redemption is not this passive thing that, that happens to you and that the state does to you. It's that this is something that arises from an inner imperative and great effort on the part of the individual, right? It requires agency, as, as does accountability. Accountability is, is not just sitting and vegetating, you know, in a prison cell, but actually... Um, owning what you've done, you know, owning the harm you've caused, right? Owning that. And then, you know, being an active agent and helping to bring balance back to wherever you, you've left imbalance, you know, in what lives, what families, what communities you've left in a state of imbalance. And so um, redemption is, for us, it's, it's something that's not done to you. It's something that's, that's done by you. We wanted to share with listeners here a conversation between Rel and Ghani about what redemption means and if it might be achieved. Yo, Rel. Yo. Yeah. When you think about the concept of redemption, I mean, like, what is what's what's that to you? Like, what does that mean? So, um, for me, redemption is about trying to make up for something wrong that you did. It's about um, atoning, making amends, you know. Um, For me, redemption is not something that ever ends. At least for me it isn't because it's something that that I kind of embody. So if we want to keep it real, guy, like, you know, I'm in prison for, like, you know, committing, you know, like, maybe the ultimate harm because somebody's not here anymore. And so, like, you can't, you can't, you can't, you know, replace that. You can't, you know, make that right. You know what I mean? Do I? (laughs) So, So, for me, it's about becoming uh, it's about changing who I am, you know, in light of what I've done. It's about always attempting to give back, no matter, and not, not in, you know, particular or specific, but just living my life. It's about, like, living my life in a way that I'll always be trying to make up for what I did. And it's something that I don't think I'll ever be able to completely do. So it's just something that I'll continue to do forever, as long as I'm here. I think that's the least that I can do. Yeah. And uh, let me say, um, I know exactly what you're talking about because, you know, I have that same 
unremovable stain, that same unremovable blood stain from my hands. You dig what I'm saying? That's something that'll never, never go away. You know, I'm just out here now, you know, but, um, but that doesn't change. I might not be confined to the prison walls anymore, but I'm confined to that past. I'm confined to that history. I'm confined yeah. to that. I'm confined to that fact. Yeah. And redemption is not ever going to liberate me from that fact. Right. Cause right. You can't and never completely re- redeem yourself. Like no. Because you're talking about the ultimate trespass. You know, yeah. um, this is an irreversible, irreparable act. Let's 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 be real about it. And so, yeah. redemption. I'm not even fond of the term because but it's more like a soft spot in the walls of the English language that that we're confined to you know what I'm saying and it wasn't always soft it was hard you know redemption in its original definition was it was a, fi- a financial arrangement you know buying back something physically you know what I'm saying that's what it meant to repurchase something um, when it became this word that kind of like has this kind of like moral connotation to it, this human transformation connotation to it is, um, you know, it's because of us wearing against it and using it in that context, context and redefining it. And so especially having you and I haven't been like co-founders of these things that bear that word as a name. You know, we've been a part of like redefining that. You know what I'm saying? Right. I think, I think, well, I think to that, like, the the context that we kind of exist under in Pennsylvania with these mandatory minimum sentences kind of like lended itself to us, you know, uh, coming up with the concept because of what that sentence inherently does. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, it inherently says that you're in that you're incorrigible, like, um, that no matter the circumstance and no matter what you become or how you transform, you'll always be no more than your worst action. And so we're saying, like, and you know what we say, like, I mean, it kind of almost forced us to come up with a, with this, with this concept of, like, you know, uh, atoning. Yeah. Because the wouldn't allow it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm saying, like, no, seriously. And, you know, for me and you to have this conversation, this ain't a conversation that is normally had, especially, like, between two people that know what it's like to commit the ultimate trespass. And we're talking with each other and, like, coming to terms with with yeah. that, right? Yeah. And for me, though, bruh, redemption... And I and we I think we got it. We always talked about being careful of the mindset and the way we look at the issue because it will creep out in the language that we use, no matter how hard we try. And so, even saying things like redemption means me being more than my worst moment, we got to be careful of saying it like that because for you and me, it might be a moment. But for the person that lost the family member, that's not a moment. They still living with that. So we got to be careful to reduce their experience and their pain and their loss to a moment. What's a moment for us ain't is forever now. Yeah. So redemption yeah, means, huh? No, I'm, I'm, hold on. I'm glad you kind of pointed that out because 
I, and, I, and I'm glad you pointed because this is like a kind of a perfect example of, of kind of like what we talked about in the article about like how it's this dichotomy, this us versus them kind of dichotomy that, right. that affects us. And so we automatically kind of like, like think about our about ourselves and our own situation and what happens to us as opposed to the situation is totality. Like not only what happened to us, but what happened to the people that we affected directly. Like it's, it's kind of like we we it's the, the how the system is designed it separates us into these into these opposing these polar opposite and opposing camps. That's and, right. You know, we're always kind of like going going against each other and trying to figure out. And we always kind of take the position of like we're the good guys, right? And right. And Right, because we play and, right in. And we put right. what I said, like far as like, you know, being reduced to my worst action is an example of, you know, how the system creates that. The day exactly, right, and so and they and they continue to thrive and benefit off of that win or lose, right. Right. you know what I'm saying? Dynamic that they that they create, and so we gotta put, we gotta become sensitive to that. We gotta become sharp to that and keen to that and interrogate the language that we use. So like for me, redemption is not about being more than my worst act, right? Or being, because it's not, for me, it's not just a moment. I'm still living with that forever too, right? But redemption is about being what my mother gave birth to me to be. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Which is the same way a mother didn't, give birth to her child to be murdered my mother no mother gives birth to their child to take another life you know what i'm saying and it's being the totality of what i was what i'm meant to be right but it's also as for, for a social creature such as a human being is supposed to be and is designed to be is to be accepted welcomed wanted back in the good graces the smiling faces and the warm embraces of the community that I had offended. And so meaning like if I, if I was to become the best of what I was supposed to be and be capable of, and, and, and that I'm capable of being as a human, but I was still rejected by the community, I might be able to find some consolation. Like, look, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. And at least I'm not part of the problem anymore. Right. But I, I would never, I wouldn't have true happiness until I was welcomed back into the community. Yeah. You understand right. what I'm saying? So right. it's about right. being, you know what I mean, though, Ralph? Yeah, absolutely. So, but I gotta ask, like, um, and and understand exactly everything that you that you're saying, but at the same time, trying to figure out, like, what would be the best way to to, to describe, like, what death by incarceration sentences reduces you to. If you don't want to, if you don't, if, 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 if saying it reduces you to your worst action, right, isn't enough to, isn't a, isn't a, isn't a, uh, a good way to describe everything that happens, what would be a better way? Death by incarceration confines me or de- de- denies me the opportunity or the right to be responsible. It denies me the right to be accountable. It denies me the right to reach a higher destiny. 
and to become a better person and to be a better self. And no one has the right to tell you, Rel, that you can't become better or that you can't become more responsible or that you can't be put in a position where you could discharge your duties to the community and to the world and to the universe. So it's Death not by about the words ash. It's not about your words ash and it's about what you can become. What you can become. Because you know how they say about forgiveness is giving, you know, it's about giving up on the hope for, for the past to be different. The past is gone. This actually comes really nicely to the next question because, Ghani, you mentioned that in the process of redemption, there is attention to the harm that was done and how one can make amends and respond to that. And, and Rachel, I know that there has been some pushback to your article and subsequent commentary on Jones via Twitter and other places. Can you talk a little bit about what that pushback has been like um, and and how it connects to this idea of redemption and, and harm that's been done. Yeah, absolutely. I love the way Ghani put this, that we need um, a new theory of violence. So people that are pushing back tend to say that the right to redemption is somehow disrespectful or at, you know, at a minimum overlooks the victims um, of these crimes. Um, and indeed, like, um, Oftentimes, so, so um, I, I posted some things about my reflections on the Jones decision and some of the pushback I got about, about the article I wrote, um, I wrote an article on Bloomberg Law, sort of reflecting on how Jones intersected with our article. And, and people felt that I disrespected um, the victim uh, or the widow of um, the person who, uh, it was actually Brett Jones's grandfather who um, was you know, the, the victim of Brett Jones' violent acts. And it's just so interesting because I think that this case in particular shows how we misunderstand the nature of violence. Um, so Sotomayor in her dissent talks about how Brett Jones's grandmother, so this is the widow of the victim, actually testified in support of Brett Jones's release, release at his sentencing uh, hearing. He, she also submitted an amicus brief saying that her grandson was never irredeemable. And this is just a really different understanding of how violence works and, and what violence looks like in, in families and in communities across the country and really across the world. In my view, Jones reflects sort of this desperate need to other violence. We need to separate the violent from the nonviolent. That's what's gonna make violence go away. The answer to violence is containment or prison. Um, but in reality, how I understand violence um, is that it operates more like a pinball. So sometimes it hits one person and then it propels forward. Sometimes it goes back and forth between individuals. And if we look at Brett's case, you know, that was the case in his um, life experience. He was subjected to years of physical abuse and neglect by his father and then his stepfather. And on the day of Brett's time, he was also um, involved in a physical altercation with his grandfather. And so we see just by this, you know, stark example um, that reached the Supreme Court, how violence can be propelled forward, sometimes back, and sometimes it makes the victim into a perpetrator. And so we need understandings of violence to actually ex critically examine the nature of how violence is uh, propagated in our societies in order to combat it. As, as Ghani was pointing out, incarceration does nothing to stop this cycle of violence. Instead, it, it replaces individual violence by state violence. And that's really sort of the core of our argument in the right to redemption. 
Yeah, I'm so glad, Rachel, that you brought that up because you and I have talked before about where that where is violence located in these different understandings of the criminal legal system and understandings about redemption and punishment and traditional understandings seem to locate violence in people that a person is inherently violent that is it's in them and that person needs to be isolated rather than recognizing as in your pinball analogy that violence is within structures and is is a force that operates in particular communities and and in our society in a variety of ways including in state violence and state-sponsored violence um and so i think that distinction in how we think about violence and where it's located and how it functions is a really important theoretical distinction to draw when we're thinking about the practical implications Ghani, do you want to jump in here yeah definitely um thanks thanks to sarah and thanks uh, rachel for 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 lifting that up you know i think you know as you were talking um Something Daniel Sered said came to mind. Daniel Sered, you know, she um, she runs uh, an organization in Brooklyn, New York, called Common Justice. Um, that you know, it's it, it it it's a diversion program where the district attorney refers cases to that organization, and they facilitate the accountability and restore a restorative justice process as an alternative to incarceration. Um, has really has been really really successful as well. But she wrote a book. I think it, it came out in 2019, I believe it was, called Until We Reckon, Violence, Mass Incarceration, and a Road to Repair. Michelle Alexander wrote a really powerful review of that in her column in the New York Times. But the quote that came to mind as y'all were talking was when she said, Justice, we cannot incarcerate our way out of violence. We cannot reform our way out of incarceration without taking on the question of violence in this Violence is directly connected to this issue that we're talking about, redeeming justice, because we're talking about life without parole or death by incarceration cases, which is connected to, to violent acts. I'm not saying that everybody that was serving life without parole in this country committed a violent act, and that's another thing we got to lift up, because you actually have people serving that sentence that didn't kill anybody, you know, even children up to, up, up until Graham versus Florida came down and um 2010, right? But um, you still have people in this country serving life without parole sentences who, who didn't um, commit any act of violence. They might have just, they might have been their third offense, you know, and, and so they were, their, their cases were controlled by three strikes laws and stuff like that. And so, but I, I, I just want to um, lift up that, you know, James Gilligan is, 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 is some, someone I would direct everybody to check out his piece called Violence you know, a reflection on a national epidemic where he talks about, you know, um, you know, illustrating the difference between the philosophy or the scholasticism of the Middle Ages and the new scientific thinking that um, was beginning to be applied at the time, you know, and, and I think what we're talking about in Redeeming Justice is very forward-looking, it's representing a break from that old Middle Age way of looking at the human condition and human behavior. You know what I'm saying? That we've kind of like been all but confined to, and that seems to be fighting hard not to to go away. You know, in 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 his piece um, on violence, Gilligan uh, suggested this, this analogy real quick, where he 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 talked about one of the plays that was written by Jean Baptiste Poquelin, 
who was a playwright, an, an activist at the time, and he illustrated, he, he wrote, he talked about in, in one of his plays called Moliere, um, this physician who was a character in the play talked about the, um, he explained that how morphine makes people sleepy by attributing that property to its quote unquote dormitive principles. And when you look up the word dormitive, um, it merely means sleeping, sleep inducing. And so that's not an explanation, right? It's what you call a tautology. It's saying the same thing twice. To say that morphine makes you sleep because of its sleep inducing principles, that's not an explanation. Likewise, you know, the question is, why is it sleep inducing? Why does it make you go to sleep? Let's get the scientific breakdown of that. The same thing with violence. By saying that people commit violence because they're bad or because they're just they're wrong or they're you know, they're violent you know or they're you know that's tautologist okay we know that people commit violence because in that moment they were violent or bad in that moment but the question is why you know and so value-based judgment is what has governed you know the thinking behind we believe of a lot of our sentencing practices you know and so now we're thinking about you know um if we're going to talk about redemption, we have to have an explanation and a theory of violence because then we can have a, a solution, you know, and, and, and once we have a solution, then we have hope, right? And um, redemption is definitely connected to this idea of hope. I just wanted to lift that up. And just, and just, and just finally, just for me, you know, we as a society and a species, Sarah, you know, we know that human beings have the capacity to be violent and destructive. We are well aware of that, right? It's perhaps the most unfortunate aspect of the human condition. Our society has codified laws and instituted a criminal legal system to correspond with the violent and destructive aspects of the human, uh, human nature. We've created harsh sentences and prisons with harsh conditions that last forever or until the condemned person dies, right? We also are well aware that human beings have the capacity for transformation, for betterment, for redemption. Life without parole or death by incarceration forecloses that aspect of what it means to be human, right? That aspect. Our society's laws and criminal legal system does not correspond with that aspect or dimension of the human condition. So as a society, it seems we correspond legally only with the worst aspects of what it means to be human and not with the best. Right. So I will fight for the right to redemption or to have redemption recognized as a right of every human is to fight for the wholeness of justice. Right. For a justice that corresponds with the wholeness of being human. That's beautifully said, Ghani. And I'm going to come back to you here in the last few minutes that we have in thinking about solutions, which you gestured towards just a moment ago. And if we are going to take seriously this statement that we cannot incarcerate our way out of violence, and that, as you said, death by incarceration forecloses what it means to be human, we need, as you um, argue in your article, Redeeming Justice, we need a radical reimagination of the criminal legal system. So I'm wondering, Ghani, what does this radical reimagination look like, one that does not foreclose what it means to be human? Yeah, definitely. And and I'm not gonna position myself as having 
you know, all the answers. The answers are not going to come out of any one mind or two or three minds. It's going to take every one of us, you know, all of us, all hands on deck. To f- every one of us has to grab an oar, you know, to, to steer to steer this ship that we have that seems to be going over a waterfall. Everyone has to grab an oar to steer things around, and that includes people behind the walls. We have to allow them to grab an oar and be a part of this struggle, you know, for a better society. And so just as an example, like right now, I am the program manager of um, of rest- a restorative justice program called Healing Futures, right, with, with, with an organization called the Youth Art and Self-Empowerment Project, or YASP. What this, what this entails is District Attorney of Philadelphia refers the cases of young people um, who were apprehended before they are charged them. They refer, they, they, the district attorney receives the cases from the charging unit and then refer the cases to our team. And we work towards bringing the young person face to face with the person that they've harmed. Everything is consensual, consensual of course, and it takes a, a matter of weeks preparing everyone if they agree to participate. And when they come together at a restorative community conferencing, the young person has an opportunity to own account, to be accountable, to express their accountability and offer an apology, a written apology. And the reason why it has to be written, because it has to be something that we know the young person has been spending the weeks applying themselves to. Apologize to the person that they've harmed. The person that's harmed gets an opportunity to, ex- to express the impact of the harm on themselves, their lives, their families' lives, everything. And then they also get to bring their supporters. And their supporters get an opportunity to express how the act or the harm impacted them. And also they get a chance to express their hopes in the young person. And then we all come up with a community agreement, which is led by the person harmed. We come up with a a community agreement for how the young person is going to repair this harm. A person might decide they want them to work at their, do some work at their property, to volunteer for a charity maybe that they prefer, to do some community beautification, plant trees. But this is not community service. It's about repairing the harm. They might decide that they just want the young person to better their grades, or they might not have any ideas. And so we have other community members there with resources that might say, well, look, we have a program over here that does vocational training. You can have the young person learn a trade or get an education in STEM or whatever it is. And then it takes several months for the young person to complete this program. And once the young person completes the program and we're monitoring, monitor, monitoring them, of course, and they keeping that tight relationship, we said we get word back to the district attorney's office that the person has completed the program. And um, then no charges are filed, no criminal records are entered and so on and so forth. And um, then there is a community celebration, not celebrating that someone got away, uh, escaped being charged for some wrong that they've done, but celebrating what we as a community have the capacity to do and celebrating our capacity to arbitrate our own differences and solve our own issues, right? And work through things even after we trespass amongst each other, I mean, against each other, right? And we celebrate our agency um, without the system being involved. And I think, I think that's important because right now what we have, when we talk about, like when we spoke earlier about rehabilitation is something that lacks that agency or forecloses agency, 
the entire process, legal process that we have forecloses the agency of entire communities. Because you go inside the, co the courtroom, decide the family that was trespassed against, that person and their family sits on one side of the courtroom. The, the person that caused the harm, them and their families, and sit on one side of the courtroom. They're separated from the courtroom literally by a fence or some kind of wooden gate. And then they watch everything play out silently about them. The prosecutor argues for and against one side. The defense argues for and against another side. And literally someone, a judge, sits literally higher, on a higher altitude, literally, than everyone else and judges. And the only input that anyone else has about the situation that they were directly impacted by is when they're called upon to get on the stand and the, their testimony is the only utility value. And after it's done, they're dispersed and no one checks up on them to see how they're doing, how they're healing and so on and so forth from the traumas of the, of the harm. And, and with this diversion process, it's entirely different. It's about agency because everyone faces each other. No one sits above each other and everyone has a stake in the health and well-being of the community because we realize that what we need after harm is for the person who, who was harmed, their needs to be met to heal. The person who caused the harm needs, needs must be met to help repair the harm. The community's needs to be healthy and whole must be met, and all of us must come together to see that those needs are met, right? And so this is something that's not just being done in Philadelphia, it's being done in California, in Nashville, Tennessee, in Miami, in New York, in Durham, North Carolina, you know, this is a spreading phenomenon. People are realizing that what we need more now is not hammering. You know, the, the problems that we're facing is not a nail. So it's not necessarily to be addressed by a hammer. What we need is healing and transformation. And so all of us, you know, not just the individuals who commit the harm or the 2.3 or 2.5 million people in prison connected with harm must be redeemed, but all of us, our entire society, all 330 million of us, need redemption and um yeah now I, I would just end on that yeah thank you Ghani, so much for sharing your work with the yes project or the youth art and self-empowerment program we'll be sure to link that in the show notes so anyone who wants more information can pursue that and find out how they can support you and your work um i would really like to to lift that up here at the end we are now out of time. This has been such a delightful conversation with both of you as it always is. Thank you so much, Ghani and Rachel, for sharing your piece with us, your work with us, your ideas with us. Um, thanks to our listeners for tuning in to hear Ghani Songster and Rachel Lopez talk about Jones, the right to redemption, and their forthcoming article, Redeeming Justice. Thank you both so much for your time.